You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. For those who are watching on YouTube and our Hazard Ground channel, we certainly appreciate you guys doing that. Again, follow us there on YouTube. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You do the same thing on your smartphone, by the way. If you go to hazardground.com on your smartphone and click on that same button, it'll take you to the app. All your credit card information is saved. As always, you do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Joining us this week is a retired Army captain who has four and a half years of service in the historic 173rd Airborne Paratrooper Unit. He has two tours to Afghanistan. After his military career, he went on to be a writer and a director and was actually nominated for an Academy Award for his movie Day One. He also has co-produced the movie The Outpost. We've told this story before about Cobb Keating in the Battle of Camdesh, and he actually played the role of Sergeant Brad Larson in the movie. He is Hank Hughes joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hank, thank you so much for being here. We certainly appreciate you joining us, and we're excited to hear all about your story. But first, start out by telling us how and why you got in the Army. Oh, very easy. Um, my family. Um, I have sort of like a Lieutenant Dan kind of family. Ah. We're in... Um, our earliest ancestor fought in the revolution and it just was kind of continuous service since then. Um, and it just really felt like something, um, I wouldn't even call it a choice per se. And it's not like, I don't, I don't feel like I was brainwashed. Although that probably was, um, like, you know, I, I just used to wear a uniform when I was three and, 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 and pretend to be my dad. And, um, uh, my mom was in as well. And her father was in her twin brother was in, and before that they were in Italy. And so, I just grew up in this family that like what we did is we were part of the American army. Um, and I just thought that was a great thing to continue. And I think I just always felt like I would have been a little empty if I hadn't done that. Um, I mean, I didn't join because of nine 11. Um, I didn't think <laughs> when I joined, I was like, or at least when I was thinking about it, I was like, Oh, I'll be like hanging out in Germany and drinking beer. That's what my dad did. Uh, and I did some of that, but, in between that, I was like hanging out in Afghanistan a lot, I guess. But um, yeah, it was it was really about family. Um, and I didn't really even think I would do like, I thought I was going to be like a signal guy. And then once I got in, I realized like, if I'm going to do this, I better do this and like see what they have to offer. And you know, that's how I kind of ended up at the 173rd. Any conversations at all with the family about taking a different route? Because it's always sort of difficult to break ranks. I mean, appropriate mm-hmm. term, right? You know, oh, yeah. and, and some of that is, you know, ethnic and, you know, how you were raised and all that plays into it. Um, you know, like, for example, a, a lot of my friends who uh, are Jewish, you know, they if their family was a family of lawyers, their sons and their kids became lawyers. Totally. Yeah. That's, what, that's the way they're. So was there any sort of conversations with the family about possibly doing anything else. You know, it's funny. Um, it, you would think from like the sound of like how I describe my family that there's like a, this pressure. I don't know. <laughs> everyone's a real like uh, uptight at the dinner table. And like, I don't know, like literally three blunt. squares like this every day. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it's, it's actually, they were like really liberal people. 
like I didn't, uh, not to need to get into politics or such, but like, um, I, I didn't grow up knowing that I was living in a conservative community until high school, uh, because of my sort of parents, uh, progressivism. My mom was, uh, was in the military. She was, she was also a captain on in the army, uh, but she got out and she was a speech therapist and, uh, did special education. She was always drawn to like this, um, I can't think who that person was, the Helen Keller story. And uh, so she always had a big heart. And so we kind of grew up with that. And like my dad's side used to be Quakers and they quit being Quakers to join the army. And so it's like, there's all of this, like, I guess, hippie shit going on in my family as well. Uh, That's like, so there was never any, like, you have to do this. It was more like, you should do what you want to do. Um, And I was raised in a very loving and like, um, supportive environment to, to, to choose what I wanted to do. I mean, I think they were pretty confused um, when I was like, oh, I'd like to make movies. Uh, maybe not confused, but like, I, they don't, it's just far outside of anything that we do. Um, but they were never sort of like, you should do this. Um, I think the only person who got pressure was my little sister got a little pressure from my mom saying, maybe you should try it. Um, but and that she ended up going to the Peace Corps instead, which is like, just sort of like shows like it's, it's, it's a, that's the kind of family we were in. Different kind of core, I guess, right? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, I, have to, I have to ask you, we, we neglected to mention this. We started chatting about it before we started recording, but you went to Boston University. And so, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious uh, how you didn't end up, uh, you know, in, in, what is it? Is it the Beanpot game? You against Boston University and Boston College and, you know, the, the, the ice hockey lore of, of Boston hockey. I mean, you know, uh, you, you didn't go down that road at all, huh? No. Uh... You know, it's, I, I, I did. I loved sports for a long time in my life and hockey was my favorite sport. I played up until about like 13 or so, but um, I was born to be uh, an officer because I'm like a beanpole who could run and everyone else was going through puberty and they were hitting me very hard. And then I tried football and it was worse. And so I stuck to soccer and running. Uh, so I couldn't, I don't know if I had it in me to be an athlete, man. Maybe I could run a marathon. I have like that sort of body. I don't have this sort of thing that's like, it can take a hit standing up really well. I'm like too tall. and like, I, get, I just go really far when someone hits me. Yeah. See, um, I, I think the difference between you and me is, uh, well, I'm not that tall and lanky. Um, I just, when I got hit in football, I wasn't dumb enough to quit. Like I just kept coming back. So, um, you know, I, I figured if, you know, I, I got back up, they might respect me a little more. No, they only knocked me on my ass even harder. So, uh, lesson learned. Uh, I was never meant to be a soccer player though. So re- different discussion anyway. So, uh, you, you graduate from, from Boston university. Uh, what year is it? Uh, it was 2006. Okay. So both wars are fully kicked off right now. And and you are knowing you are going to war. Your parents know you're going to war at some point in time. Yeah. Any any reservations, any, any sort of, uh, you know, I guess apprehension, if you will. I think the power of uh, suppression is very powerful (laughs) in the young mind. And um, the only time it really hit me was um, my unit was in Afghanistan when I started ranger school. Um, and I remember like sort of having the thought, like, maybe I shouldn't go to ranger school. Maybe I should join my unit. And, um, excuse me. And basically a lot of uh, trusted people were like, no, nah, you should do that. Cause you'll learn what you need. And, uh, it, it, I'm so glad I went to ranger school. It, uh, I, 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 if Afghanistan changed me, I think ranger school, uh, maybe did twice as much. I feel like it just sort of re- rewired my brain, um, in a, in a great way, uh, in terms of being, uh, preparing you for combat. 
Um, and so when I got out of ranger school, I found out that um, my next door neighbor in, in Heidelberg, we went to Heidelberg American High School together. Um, both of our, our families were military families. Um, ben Hall, uh, he was lieutenant in the 173rd. And my dad told me in our driveways, like, hey, just so you know, I, I didn't tell you this, but like when you were in your when you were in mountain space, I think it was uh, Ben got killed. And I was like, shit. Um, I just talked to him on the phone like two months ago. Um, and it starts to really hit you and you start to think about his family. And I know his family. I had a major crush on his sister, you know, and it's like this whole they were had like a second life. They're like our neighbors and they had kids the exact same age as us. And then Ben and I both joined the army. Um, it was just a very strange sort of like sliding doors or like mirror image thing. And I was like, Phew. and then I thought I should not think about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I didn't think about it a lot until uh, years later. And I probably think about Ben every day now. Um, but I, I pushed it as far as I could from my mind because I didn't know what else to do. I got a hint of it when uh, I got to uh, see my family right before I deployed for Thanksgiving. I, uh, my mom, like, they like let us go all the way to the terminal, even though it's like still post 9-11 and you couldn't do stuff like that. And I just remember seeing my mom cry as I was leaving. And, and it just sort of like hit me like, wow, this is like um, bigger than me. This is beyond my understanding. Um, and so I just thought I should probably try and do my best and uh, not get hurt. Um, but, you know, yeah. So, I mean, there was apprehension at that level, but um, beyond that, no, not really. I, I think it was, you know, I think you knew it was coming. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it it's long years. I'll never forget the first time I saw my older brother break down and cry that I was, I was heading off to Iraq um, yeah. and sob uncontrollably like I've never seen it happen before. You know, my parents divorced me when we were kids. I never saw my brother cry. You know, um, uh, even when I, I had a cousin who passed away at a young age, never really saw him cry. But when I, you know, w was leaving for Iraq about a month before, I, or not even about a couple of weeks before I left, I mean, I saw that, that, that him just lose it. And that is a, a, a sombering experience um, when, you, when, it, when it hurts your family. You don't realize how much, I think when you're, you're younger, you don't realize how much your family can actually hurt, right? Because you never see them hurt. Oh, like they're, especially yeah. if they're older than you, your parents and your older siblings, there's that protective thing that they're always trying to do and not let you see them ever be vulnerable like that. And then when it happens, when life happens and an event happens that sort of tears down that, that wall and, and it's raw, um, it changes your scope of things without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it is a, it's hard to look outside of yourself for a, for a large part of your life. Um, and actually I think being in a platoon really helped with that um, about becoming less me and more a part of a collective and, and a we. Um, and it's, it's certainly enriched my understanding of my family as well. Um, and I also saw some interesting things from my mom. I, remember I talked to my mom about it recently. She goes, well, I just figured you were very smart and you'd be okay. And uh, I didn't have the heart to tell her that that was some, that was just some silly ass shit, mom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I haven't met any stuff. amount of smarts that's been able to stop a bullet, right? I mean, yeah, I say, well, mom, I don't have the force. I cannot yeah, divert things with my mind, you know? I'm not invisible, mother. Yeah. I, I, they can find me and easily find others, but 
Yeah, I don't know. It's I I, I do. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess thinking about this makes me feel so lucky that uh, that I was able to get out uh, th- through the other side. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I live a really good life. Um, and I think about those those um, those voids left in families' lives. Um, you know, those, those gold star families is a hard thing. Um, they're just living with this missing piece. Um, and I don't know what to do with it other than to uh, sort of honor it, I suppose. And yeah, I mean, that's why I wanted, that's why I wanted to mention Ben, because uh, he was a big part of my life, he's a big part of many people's lives, you know? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I wonder as you, you started out in your military career, um, even when you signed up, like, see, I, can't, I signed up in a pre-9-11 world. And I can remember yeah. having conversations with my my mother. And I, look, I I did it to pay for college, right? Like it was just a different time back then. It was a means to an end, you know. It, yeah, I've told the story repeatedly. You know, I was going. To, everyone was going to job fairs in college, and I was going to the army. And they're like, "Well, why aren't you going to the job fairs?" I'm like, "Because I got to go in the army." And they go, "Why don't you get a real job?" You know. And so it's like it was just a different mindset. And I can remember having those conversations with my parents, like. What if you have to go to war? This, and you're like, it's 1999. It's like, there's no war coming. You're not going to war. That's never going to happen. You know, and you sort of detach yourself from the reality. But it's different for you in a post 9-11 world because that was always the reality. It was if you were signing up at some point, you were going. I mean, it, there, there was no escaping it. For sure. I mean, well, I signed up in high school uh, sort of for an RTC contract. And that was in 2001. And so... I watched 9-11 happen in uh, my U.S. government class of my wow. senior year. Um, and so that certainly changed the sort of understanding of like what was going to happen. And then, you know, as I'm in college, it's like we're going to Afghanistan and then, then Iraq happens. Um, and so like you, you sort of knew, although actually I don't know if I knew because I remember thinking like maybe the war will be over by then because, you know, <laughs> I mean, my, my dad had gone to Bosnia and like, Desert Storm happened while 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 he was in the military. He was supposed to go and didn't, and so forth. And like, you know, it's those things were fast, sort of. I mean, Bosnia kept going, but like in a kinetic way, it was pretty fast from from our from our from our side. Not yeah, but plus it was side. also fought at thirty thousand feet. You know, like there there yeah. wasn't. Yeah. I mean, there were some tensions on the ground, but it wasn't. There was never any actual fighting. Totally. On the ground. Yeah. It was. A, it was a the kinetic part was quick. Yeah. Um. And so I don't. I don't know if I really thought that I was going to be a part of anything super kinetic. Um, but, you know, I guess we tried to fight wars in a different way. And um, I guess we'll be able to judge that in a few years, how successful that has been. But yeah, remains <laughs> history is written by the winners, right? Um, we still don't know who that is yet at this point, but uh, more, yeah. more to follow. So uh, you, I'm just curious how you ended up in the 173rd. Was that by choice, by design, or did you just, was it luck? I mean, was there any talk of, ahead of time of where you wanted to go? I mean, because it's pretty much, you know, um, commissioning well, I mean, your basic course super. and then on to Airborne and Ranger School in that order? Yeah, I mean, I got lucky. I was, so I was supposed to go to 4th ID, and um, my family lived, I was an armor officer. My family lived in, in Kentucky still, and so I didn't want to take um, leave because I was trying to save it up for some other time in my head. So I said, I just basically went under this, like they sent me to this guy at Fort Knox, this Colonel who wanted me to write him a paper about the M1A2 tank, because 
he was whatever whatever his job was. I don't remember a lot. Was of his last on. name Abrams? <laughs> no, no, no. But like, anyways, I had to write this report. And he, he liked the report. It took me like three weeks. I had to study all this crap. It was so it was weird. I don't know why I was doing this in the middle of the army. Uh, then like I didn't want to take Christmas leave. And so at the end of it, um, he's like, oh, he did a great job. He's like, uh, what, do you, what do you want to do in the army? And I said, well, I'd love to go to uh, to, to to Europe and uh, be in a be in a cav unit. Um, and he goes, oh, I know a guy. And that's how it happened. Um, and, and the guy was the, the, my squadron commander had been this uh, colonel's company commander. Or, or been, sorry, been a company commander for this um, guy that I wrote the paper for. Um, and so I sort of, he's like, you should go there. He goes, that guy's great. Chris Kalinda was his name, um, my squadron commander. And so I, it, was, it was like this strange thing of me writing some random report like it was college still. I, I, don't, I don't really know why I was doing it, to be honest. Um, but it all worked out because, um, I think I would have had a lot less, um, fun in Fort hood, uh, which is where I think I was headed. Yeah. At the time, 4ID was still there. Yeah. Um, 4ID now has all moved, but there was a, um, there was a brigade, uh, of fourth ID at, at Fort hood when it was there, when I was stationed there. Um, yeah. and it was the only active post that housed two major divisions at the same time. So yeah, Fort hood sucked. If you got Fort Carson, it would have been bad, but Fort hood. Yeah. Pretty- I remember I found out later, I was like, well, I wouldn't have been so bad. Because they were moving up there, but. right? Um, Ranger school, toughest part about it for you? Learning not to quit. Um, I think I don't know everyone's experience, but my entire life, you know, if something got too hard, I would uh, take a break, you know, and sit down in the middle of the field or whatever, and. Uh, there was a moment in Ranger School where I, I almost did that. I half passed out uh, from heat exhaustion. And um, they, like, sent me to the line to, to go get a thermometer up my butt so that they could say, you got too hot and you got to get out of here. And uh, there were, like, four or five of us because it was very hot. I went during, like, August. And um, basically when the medic turned around, I just walked away. And I walked back and joined my, my little squad or platoon, whatever it was, for because um, that was, like, first phase. Um, and I said, from that point forward, I'm not going to quit again. I didn't come all this way just to be a little hot and overheat and act like it's that hard. It's like, it's just, I had to, I had to flip that switch. Um, and that was a big deal uh, for me. Um, I feel like that was the first time in any sort of, it, it was like, it was the moment in life where like I stopped being uh, the, the, the kid and became an adult um, and decided to take responsibility for myself. Yeah, those are those are seminal moments, man. Um, yeah, that's huge. You know, and it, I think a lot of military people have, particularly officers, right? Because it, it's such a growth pattern. I, I I think it's different on the enlisted side because typically the the lower enlisted are young and they're molded and they're yeah. constantly told what to do. There's obviously a lot more autonomy on the officer side, but I think at least the good officers, the ones that I've come across, all have that sort of moment where. You do growing up. And and hopefully for most people, most officers, it happens very early on as a lieutenant. And full disclosure, it didn't happen until I was a captain. It didn't happen until I was actually deployed uh, and, and understood kind of the nature of, you know, what it meant to be a leader and, and what it meant to be able to, to execute a mission and get a job done. And so you yeah. have those moments and they stick with you for a really, really long time. And, um, and, and I say that only just to kind of uh, I look at everything prior to that as, you know, uh, the part of my military career I'd like to go back and do over again. Sure. You know, I, I just wish, I, I always say I wish I was a better lieutenant. 
I, I wish I wasn't such a wise ass. I wish I wasn't such a know-it-all. I wish I, I, I had probably sat back and listened more and tried to take it in more and, and uh, appreciate what I was doing at the time. And, and you know, and that's just the very nature of it, right. though, in some ways that like you're asking someone who's 22 to be a father of 40 yep. or something like that. At least a parent doesn't. You, you can argue who the father, who the mother is, I guess, inside a platoon. But um, it, and that's, that's a lot for a 22 year old. Um, at some point, I mean, there, there's a reason that the the person who's like showing you the way has been in the military for some time because they have that sort of like wisdom of a parent um, that a 22 year old can't really have. Um, so I think that is sort of a built in function of it. But yeah, you're right that there is there there's a slight difference there with officers because you're just so you're put on. Um, you have to be accountable so much sooner to more than just yourself, you know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 but I mean, honestly, I, what a, what a great gift that's been to, to me in, in, in my own personal like um, trajectory. Always, always a head scratcher that uh, the army looks at it and goes, um, yeah, here's all these people and a couple of, you know, tens of million dollars worth of equipment yet. You can't even rent a car. So yeah, uh, go, go figure that logic out. All right, right after Ranger School, uh, where do you head to and how quickly do you start getting ready for a deployment? Um, I got to go home and have Thanksgiving with my family. And then I went to to Germany for a week or two. And then I was in Afghanistan. Um, By the way, Thanksgiving after Ranger School probably works out well because you've lost 30 pounds. So you want to put oh, it all back great. So great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think I went from like 190 to like 155 or so. I lost oh, a little over 30 God. pounds. Um, I was just, I mean, I, I can get so thin, um, just naturally. And like that sort of environment was just not great for, for my body. And, but, uh, anyways, I definitely ate my fill. And I remember that by the time I got to my unit, I was still pretty weak and I was like trying to work out with some guys. Um, and like, I couldn't bench press anything. I couldn't like press anything. I could walk for days. I mean, I just couldn't like these other sort of like, they're not just beach muscles, but like the ability to do something other than carry a lot of weight for a long amount of time. I mean, I was just weak. I was weak for a long time. <laughs> you know, but so I got there like in the the, uh, the winter, so I got some time to like beef back up, and like before I had to like sort of like hit the fighting season running, you know. Right. Uh, so you said Germany for a couple of weeks, and then Afghanistan. When? Um, I got there for right before Christmas, I think. Yeah, I was definitely there for Christmas. I must have got there sometime in December. Yeah, and then I took the platoon over in. January. Wow. So not a lot of train up time with those guys. Oh, I mean, no, no. I mean, it was like, um, I mean, I met my platoon at cop Keating. Um, oh, wow. I didn't, uh, I mean, I met my commander the, the day before cause he happened to be coming back from R and R. And so we flew there together. Um, but I mean, it was sort of like, uh, here you go. I mean, it, it was good in so far as like, I would hate to do a sort of left seat, right seat in the middle of the fighting season. This was, we were snowed in at this point. We're up in like the, you know, high Hindu Kush. And so we couldn't really get into too much trouble. Um, and so I was able to sort of, um, you know, sort of plant myself a little bit before any of that happened. So. And for the people listening and fans of the, of, of the hazard ground, a uh, little, I, I guess serendipity is not really the right word. Um, but you end up, as we talked about, being part of the movie The Outpost. You mentioned Kyle yeah. Keating. You weren't there for the Battle of Camdash. You were there the year prior. Um, right. But it's just sort of 
you know, fate that it happened to be that you were stationed at that place yeah. uh, only to make a movie about it later. And, and I am curious your thoughts because as somebody who's never been to physically been to Cop Keating, when, you know, we start preparing to talk to guests who are in that battle and you just go over the landscape over and over again. Yeah. And for the life of me, and I asked this of everybody who was there about how you entered that place and what your thoughts, I, I can't think and I'll take take me back to ROTC days, like all of your nine principles of war, your Okoka, everything that you learn yeah. to be a lieutenant. Cobb Keating violated every single thing of it. And you no. didn't have to be a military war expert or, or versed in theory, gone to war college strategy to know that this place sucked. Like this was a bad decision by God knows who. And it was there for a long time. So when you you know hear Cobb Keating, obviously you don't know what it is. But kind of give me the background, and then when you get there, your impressions of it. You know, I mean, I think the the framework to try to understand why it's at, at, <laughs> at the bottom of a bunch of mountains, surrounded on all sides. Um, I think you have to understand that the war that we were fighting was. Uh, I think people thought that maybe the human terrain was more or is equally important as key terrain. Uh, and with meaning the high ground. Um, and so I can see how we ended up um, at this position where like, well, here we have better access to the people and logistics. And it's kind of also like kind of where I think they, they kind of stopped. Like, I guess here we'll kind of make a base. I don't think it was like one finite decision. I think it was like uh, decisions made over time. And then all of a sudden you've been married to the wrong person for 10 years. And you're like, why do we have four kids? Um, and, and then that's cop keating. And so... <laughs> It's just just a, a series of unfortunately shitty choices. I only laugh because uh, half the country can laugh if they've ever been divorced. They understand. Yeah. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. Uh, how did how did this end up? Uh, it, so it's it, that is the sort of I think perfect analogy for it actually. Um, and then the um, my, my impressions when I got there. Uh, I mean, look, everyone's a cherry at some point, and I was a cherry lieutenant, uh, but I wasn't dumb enough to know that, like, when you get off a helicopter, you're supposed to take a knee because you don't want to get your head chopped off or pushed over. Um, it just and But when I got off the helicopter at, at Keating, I just couldn't help but look up, and I just lost my entire situational awareness. And it was just probably mouth-breathing like an idiot looking up. And I remember my commander had to, like, pull me down. He's like, get down, you idiot. I mean, but I, it's, it's just dumbfounding. You're like, why the? What do we? It's like, you, you you can't even see the top. It's like it's just everywhere surrounded. And you're just like, man, that's like, and it's like, it's, it's so much cover and concealment. It just made no sense. And like, and we all. I remember, I remember that same commander, very smart man. He was a former Green Beret. I went green to gold and. I mean, certainly a father figure in my life, Joey Hutto. Uh, and he, and I remember he said one time, I was like, oh, my biggest fear is like, you know, we have one of these Alamo situations. And I remember at that point, I was, I didn't even thought about that. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, you know, we get surrounded. And I was like, oh shit, yeah, you're right. Because at that point, uh, we'd only had sort of like small engagements because we'd never had to like fight anybody in mass. You know, we would get into, um, you know, I'm sure we fought squads of platoon size, other elements from time to time, but like usually it was sort of like mountain to mountain in the mountains. Then, then we, when, when finally, you know, 371 comes around, they, they get surrounded by 
um, <clears throat> I guess it's like two, three, 400 people. And that's, that's a lot, you know? Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of back down from that. So, I mean, I don't yeah. know how I, mean, I, I feel for you guys every time. I, I and, and again, I had started to look at this battle after two deployments downrange. And so I've had my fair share of experiences of combat. I don't know if I would be as aware uh, had it been my first, you know, go round of things. Um, And and I'm just wondering, did you ever have the thought like, holy crap, we're going to die here? Because that like when I look at it, if you inserted me there. Anytime post my, my, my first two deployments, I'd be like, no, like, no, no, yeah. this is not where I want to breathe my last breath in this little dump at the bottom of these mountains. It's, it's just tactically a bad decision. You know, I, I didn't feel that there. I felt that on my second tour more because the violence was much closer. Right. Uh, I was in, uh, I was south of uh, Kabul and Logar and Wardak. And that fighting was like um, probably closer to like what people experienced in Iraq, you know, um, you're getting shot at from that corner of that building. And that I felt like whenever I got shot at and cop Keating, um, I always had like a, a, a good space to run to. There was, there was a mountain. It was like, it was very, it felt like what ranger school was like, which is like this, um, romantic version of, of combat of like you against me. And we got rifles and cover and concealments and like old school stuff. And so in that way, I felt okay because I, I never encountered something where I was uh, severely outmatched in a way that, like, it would, it would devastatingly happen to, to, to that place, um, you know, because because of that terrain. And once you got enough people to, to fight against, um, I'm sure I also never saw someone like get shot in front of me um, until my second tour. And that's when you, I think that I think that is an experience that really makes you. Uh, that that tears down those walls you sort of like put up of like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be okay. Um, I, the violence was never that close to me. Um, And at least from, I never saw violence. I never saw my guys get hit at that close of a distance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I felt, I wouldn't say I felt invincible. It just didn't occur to me um, in a way that uh, once I went to Logar and all of a sudden you've got like four or five wounded guys and you're just like, whoa, like one little mistake. And now all of a sudden we've lost five guys. And like, that is a much different feeling than uh, anything that I had in, uh, in Keating. Yeah. Well, I, well, I want to get to that, that second deployment, just kind of putting a bow sure. on, on the first one. Um, you know, your first engagement in combat and everything else. And, uh, you know, do do you feel like that experience prepared you for the second one adequately? I got so lucky. Uh, I got to be a platoon leader twice, which is like kind of like winning a lottery. Um, and so by the time I got to the second one, I, I definitely felt like I knew how to uh, communicate really well, uh, which is really, I think, all that being a platoon leader is, is sort of like, I, I learned uh, the, the key, I think, to being a platoon leader is understanding that you don't have to have all the answers. You just have to know what the right answer sounds like and how, and if, and if, you, if you can get there faster, the better. And then it's just being clear about the decision. Um, that, I think, to me was a lesson that um, I felt very, my first tour, I came in, these guys had already fought. They'd lost, they'd lost a commander already. 
they had this big battle this, on July 27th, and I, I hadn't been a part of it. And so I felt um, inadequate in many ways because of that, because, you know, it's like, I mean, you see it in, you see it in Band of Brothers, you see it in every war movie or something like that. There's some new guy, and it sucks being the new guy because you don't have the same experience that, that, that brought everyone together. And so in that regard, I felt, I'm sure there were definitely times where I think I was probably trying to make up for that with um, what I was hoping was confidence, which I'm sure at times felt er like arrogance. Um, and I think that by the second tour, um, I, I don't think I had any of that. Also, it was beat out of me in my first tour of my platoon sergeant. Um, I remember I, I hot dogged once and I was like, oh, I'm going to just fight in a t-shirt. And he's like, uh, he didn't call me a son of a bitch, but he basically did. And he's like, you're like supposed to be the role model for everyone. Um, and if you are like this, how do you expect everyone else to act? Um, and that was, that, I probably stopped being, um, stopped trying so hard at that point. Um, he was so good. Sergeant Burns, he's just like, I used to call him the Lieutenant Factory. I mean, other like guys that had gone through him. He sort of just, he was a very calm man. and just like kind of reached through to you like a, like an uncle would. Um, so I, I think that in that regard, it, it did help me to, um, being Lieutenant is like also learning, like you're not one of the guys uh, that you're separate. And that, that's a hard thing because nobody wants to be alone. Uh, especially when you're 22 and you're on the top of a mountain and uh, there's no one else you can really talk to about what you're, experiencing or your fears or like um just like hey how do you do this <laughs> you know, there's no one to talk to uh so I, I think that i learned a bunch of those lessons in my first tour in a way that um you know my second tour i lost um he didn't die he was wounded pretty badly on uh, my platoon sergeant and i was never really given a, another platoon sergeant um for the rest of that tour which was about like eight months without like a i had an I had two E6s, um, but uh, they never gave me a sort of like, I mean, one of them was, uh, actually I only had one E6 at that point, And he was, uh, he wasn't, he was um, an FO, but um, it's kind of a weird ragtag situation. But um, I think I was only able to do that because of the experience I'd had of being surrounded by such a strong NCO um, and like squad leaders and such in my first tour. On that second tour, uh, when you sustain casualties, uh, you talked about yeah. it a moment ago, uh, and, and beyond the, the realism that, okay, this can happen to me too, um, there is a sense of, um, you know, change that you're, you're never going to be the same again, right? Because the dynamic yeah. of, of who you are and, uh, you know, I, I say it repeatedly, the moment you put a round down range, you're, you're a different person. Right, the moment you 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 fire your weapon at a target, it, it's the old you dies, and you're a new person. Um, was there anything about that second deployment that sort of um, still stays with you from that standpoint? I think it's the only time I felt guilty, or like guilty um, how that I made a mistake, and because of that mistake, people got hurt. Um, it's the only time that really happened. And, um, it's not an egregious mistake. It was, I used, I said, Hey, I, I made a rally point 
and I used a colloquial term instead of like a grid. I said, hey, man, I'm at the fucking castle um, trying to describe a building that I was at. Um, well, there's a lot of things that look like castles um, in most of Afghanistan. And so uh, my team split and we ended up getting split because of that shorthand um, when I should have used um, a much more better use of, of sort of a some signal or some um something that could be only interpreted in one way, a grid coordinate would have been correct. Um, and because we got split, um, that's how I think we were able to, to sustain so many casualties because that entire other um, element was the one that came under contact. Um, and so, um, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I ended up carrying my platoon starting on my, on my shoulder to the helicopter. And that's like, it's a harrowing thing to feel like, man, this guy's bleeding because I fucked up and like, I'm, I'm old enough now and away from enough now to go like, I didn't build that bomb. I didn't blow it up. Um, I didn't, I didn't create every little element of that scenario. I didn't like actually put the shrapnel inside of my platoon sergeant. Right. Um, you know, um, so I, I don't mean to uh, confuse those ideas, uh, but it is sort of like something that I still carry uh, because um it's a mistake that had such severe consequences um, that I can't now see any mistake I do the rest of my life in somewhat of that light. And it's been something that I've had to sort of uh, keep track of as, I, as I've become um, a different person. Cause I'm not, I'm not a Lieutenant or a captain anymore. I'm a, I'm just a guy. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and I'll, I'll share two things. One you know, you could have given them the grid coordinate and they could have went down the exact same way as everybody. Oh, and the tail yeah, half could have gotten ambushed and killed. And, you know, you did everything right in that case and things went horribly wrong. We talk about the, the randomness of combat. And, and oh, again, anybody who's been there once, if not multiple times, understands that things, you do everything right and you still get bad results. You do everything wrong. You, you know, get I, I can results. think of the opposite where it's like, uh, I can think of one clear moment where I decided not to just push forward and like create a support by fire when, when it felt completely unnecessary. It was just a hunch that I had. And, and the next, and all of a sudden we're in contact and putting that support by fire saved lives. Like, and it's just like, so it's, it's not like it's, um, it, it, there is a balancing of all of these things. And um, you have to sort of try and create, I think that remind yourself of that totality uh, when you, instead of going down the, the rabbit hole of like, this was all my fault. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a dangerous game to always play out the multiple scenarios that could have went down in any given spot. Yeah, that, that is yeah. a rabbit hole that people who lose others in combat and lose brothers and sisters in combat, they inevitably go down. It's, I think it's impossible not to, uh, I think you'd be less human if you didn't, but it, it always leads to a very dangerous place emotionally and the things you're going to put blame on yourself for um, and how you reconcile that, I I think is why we see a lot of the struggles that veterans have what they do. But similarly, I mean, I I had a similar story and I was eight days from getting on a plane to leave Iraq and I cut a couple of corners and went on a mission without a map because I knew where I was going. And uh, long story short, on the way back, uh, we had to take a different route and I didn't have a map and my vehicle, the one I was in rolled over an IED. So I got, almost got myself killed. So, uh, yeah, I, I understand uh, that sort of, uh, uh, you know, hey, let's just do this because we know how to do it and uh, kind of it, details matter, right? They always will. Yeah, and it's, 
it's just a funny thing that, um, you know, it's, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Uh, it's, it's, it's like little things that can change, uh, in a binary sense of life or death. Um, and that's what, that's what I learned in my second tour. Um, I remember on the, on the first, actually it was the third day before I had gone ahead and I'm with the outgoing platoon and, uh, we come on a place where some guys had been, uh, they'd used it as an overwatch too many times and they blew it up and now they were all buried and we had to unbury them. And like, it was just like this, Oh fuck moment of realizing like, wow, this like com- this, this version of combat is so much more intimate and close and, and like, um, in a way that like shooting across mountains was not, or I remember I, I didn't stop a, um, it, we had gone out, uh, to uh, help on my second tour, we were basically a counter IED unit and we would like try and like gather evidence from the IED sites to then go try and find the bomb makers. So sort of a, a, a CSI to, to, to SWAT sort of thing is what we sort of did. And, um, I remember we went out to this site and I knew that on the way back, we were going to get a bunch of IEDs because there was only one way in and one way out. And so uh, I felt very, very, I felt like very proud of these choices actually, because on the way back, we found five IEDs Um, and actually we found four, I should say. It got too dark and I said, Hey, we got to sleep here tonight. Uh, We're not going to be able to find the fifth. It'll find us. And, and this one, here's the one moment of little detail. This just it's such a strange thing that happens in combat that um, it, I would, you know, I was on an hour, off an hour, whatever, like switching with the, the senior NCO. And I got up to switch over and I went to go take a piss. And I see this motorcyclist going down the road. And I don't realize until it's too late, oh, he's going in the direction we haven't cleared yet. And all of a sudden, five seconds later, boom, he finds like the fifth IED. And you realize like, oh, fuck, we should have put a roadblock up or we should have stopped him. And it's just like, fuck, man, these little oversights um, that you just like, I described this to my friend once as like that feeling I get where like, I'm always misplacing my keys. It's like a little thing, little thing (coughs) that like, like misplacing your keys in combat can have these incredible consequences that are, um, it's just staggering. It's hard to like reconcile with when you come home and like, there's just no corollary for that in regular life, but you still carry the weight of that of those small mistakes that turn into these catastrophes. It's a weird uh, thing that just doesn't exist in normal life. No. Um, And and I would say, even if it does, the results of what happens in regular life, those sliding doors talked about usually aren't life and death events, right? For the most part, they they are, they are, Oh, I missed the bus and and I didn't get to see the show or, you know, uh, I, 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 caught the train, thank God, and I got home in time just to catch the start of the game. And, you know, it's, that, that, those are the consequences. In battle and combat, it, it, the consequences are, are much, much different. So, um, you know, from that standpoint. And, and I, I think we all... Uh, good leaders are compelled to always question the things that go on, right? Like, they're always compelled to, to try and figure out how to do things better the next time. Um, and I think the thing that we don't do enough is we don't share those questions and thoughts with enough people um, because we're so afraid of being judged. We're so afraid of, sure. of having people tell us that we're wrong or that you made a bad choice um, and confirming that fear that I'm responsible for the bad thing that happened. Uh, and, and I think that also puts us in a very dangerous spot. Like we should be able to have conversations like that openly with people 
without being judged and without um, fear for retribution, if that makes sense. For sure. I mean, it's a hard thing inside of that culture at the time. Yeah. How it happened because it's like, I mean, accountability and responsibility is like, I mean, those are the pillars, you know, and um, I don't think any leader wants to admit that, um, hey, we're all going to make mistakes. And like, it's okay to make mistakes because it's kind of not okay to make mistakes, but it's also completely true that they're going to happen. And that it's, you, no one is superhuman. Um, people get tired, you know, people uh, forget to tell the motorcyclist because, you know, they had a full bladder and hadn't slept much and it just, you know, been out for two days straight. Like it, it just, it just, these things accumulate. Um, but yeah. You come out, as you mentioned earlier, you know, healthy, relatively unscathed. Yeah. Uh, you look back on that experience, lucky to survive, did what you needed to do to survive. Do you ever wonder sometimes how you made it out? I do. Um, I think I'm coming up on 10 or 11 years since the second tour. So it's like, I mean, I've also had sort of a journey. I think a lot of us probably have of, um, I've just become much more open. Uh, I, I went to therapy for a few years, sort of learned how to access feelings that I had pushed away for a long time. And so um, it's sort of, I think only in the last few years. And, uh, and I, in fact, actually making the outpost was such a strange thing too, because like, you know, I walked onto this set that looked like this place that I had been that no longer exists. This is weird deja vu of like, that's my bunk. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like, it's a weird thing. And, and I think that's when, and it, I, I'd had a friend kill himself recently when I was there and we had been friends at, at, at Keating. And I think I'd also been taking these acting classes to, to try and like, not look like an asshole. Um, and uh, I think all of a sudden I just really started to feel things and it, it struck me. I was like, holy shit, I could have died in, in a way that like, I hadn't really ever admitted that. Um, Actually, there was one time in a firefight where I did. I was like, I don't want to clear around this corner. I really don't want to clear around this corner. <clears throat> and I just did it. And I just I just ignored that fear immensely. But it's the only time I got really sort of like, I think when I turn around this corner, I'm going to get shot. Um, and I didn't. I was surprised. <laughs> but it's probably the only time where I actually felt that. Um, and I just bottled it up until, I don't know, four, two years ago. <laughs> And then I, I think I started feeling it in a way that was um, overdue. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I, I had a really good cry at, on the set of Outpost, of the Outpost, um, on my old bunk. And I just sort of sat there and, 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 and allowed myself to feel things that I uh, had not felt and did not want to feel for a long time. Um, and it felt good. It felt really good. I, um, I, I, there's part of me that's envious of you um, for that. Uh, and there's yeah. a part of me that is also petrified. We interview a lot of Vietnam vets and the Vietnam vets who either have been fortunate enough or have chosen to go back to Vietnam to walk the same mm -hmm. ground where all these bad things happened um, and, and do it again. Uh, and, and, I, and I think part of, you know, for me personally, like, if someone offered me a chance to go back to Iraq again and, and go stand in the same spot where I got into a firefight and go stand 
in the same spot where I ran over an IED and, and do those things. Um, I, I would take it, but openly, I, I, I'm already like almost shaking inside and getting nauseous thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, because the amount of raw emotion that literally at this moment could overcome me, uh, I, I, I don't, I certainly wasn't ready to handle then. And I'm not ready to handle now from a standpoint of my life has changed so much since then. You know, I wasn't married then. I didn't have kids. You know, yeah. I have a family now. I've built a, a, for lack of a better term, like a legacy, if you will. You know, like I have all these things I didn't have before. Um, and, and the idea of, as you said, one decision, one, you know, detail that gets missed that could have changed all of that for me um, is so overwhelming emotionally that it, it, it it's paralyzing. I mean, it, yeah, you know, it, 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 yeah. it, it, it takes my breath away just thinking about it. Listening to you describe the fantasy of you going back there made me think, made me fantasize about my thing of going back there. And it's like, um, I, you're right. I did get some of that with the, with, uh, going to, to the set, right? Uh, the set for yeah. sure, for sure. Um, it was, it was also, you know, just, um, creepy as well, but, um, <laughs> and like surreal. But, um, yeah, I think that it isn't just an overwhelming idea of, of, of going back. It is true. You know, I, I, I've talked to a few Vietnam vets and um, it's, it hasn't happened every time, but many times it has uh, where uh, I'm so curious, like, how are you guys dealing with that now? What do you think about that experience now? And um, on more than one occasion, they've just sort of like, it's just these old tough dudes crying. And you're like, whoa, it's like, it's like 1968, dude. You know, like that's 45 years ago and it's like, it's still in there, you know? And, um, like it's, it's obviously a very powerful thing. And, um, I, 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 I would, I would love the chance to actually go back. Yeah. Um, cause the difference is like the movie set, I never saw the people. Um, it was actors and, you know, it's fake to a degree, obviously. Um, I think it would be another thing to look at the faces of the guys or their children uh, that I fought, you know, like it's uh, that confrontation with, um, I don't want to say it's the other, but probably, yeah, the other side um, and, and, and their humanity, that would be, uh, that would make my top three things I would love to do before I die. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be harrowing, but I think it would be one of the truest moments of my life. Well, you you and I will now start a foundation to return Iraq and Afghanistan vets back to, uh, although we it's probably not the safest decision to do at this point in time. Uh, we might no, have to, I, we might have to wait a little bit longer before we uh, start kicking this thing off here. Oh, um, and I've always I've been teasing this idea of doing a doc about that. I'm not a documentarian, but uh, of trying to do that. But it's like it's just so dangerous. Yeah, to be like the first guy who goes back, it's like. I mean, I'll basically end up kidnapped, you know. Pretty much, pretty yes. much, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's a. Uh, but the, the the catharsis that's in those moments, I think, and when you talk about that good cry that you had, um, you can't help but be brought back to it. And, and, and I certainly, you know, I'm not assuming it's the same thing, uh, as far as you know. But the recreation of it just probably stirs up a, a lot of them. Oh, Hell, sure if not. you showed me a picture of it right now, uh, uh you know, of of the location, because I can literally, if I could draw, I could draw the entire battle space. And everything that was around yeah. me, I can put it in my mind and see it clearly. 
Like it just, like I was just there. Um, and so, you know, uh, getting that, that sort of reality, I think, you know, is very, very, um, there, there is some therapy in it, but there's also a whole lot of emotion. I think a lot of people may not be ready to deal with. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's, uh, I can, I haven't had kids yet, but I imagine having a kid is probably the most emotional moment of anyone's life. Um, now when you're a guy, it's just like a big mess. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things going on. You're not really aware of. <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, so you're like, Oh, this is mine. I keep this one. Yeah. Got it. Okay. okay. All right. So that one's mine. looks like the other one. The other one, that one. Right. I had twins. So I had two. I gotta, I gotta take both of them home. Got it. Okay. Noted. Oh. So, um, but yeah, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I did. I did. It was a great retort to that. Honestly, it's really funny. Uh, just that I think that there are, there are a few moments that you could sort of set aside as like, these are, um, sort of subliminal, you know, they hit this like other transcendent space. And I would think that, uh, going back would be one of them and, and being able to make that movie was, uh, sort of a, the safest, uh, diet Coke version of that, right. you know, um, which was great. And I, I do feel incredibly grateful to have been a part of it. Um, I was lucky to be a part of it. I mean, it's, we're, we're so fortunate that the that Jake Tapper wrote a book and then that it got made into a movie and then I, that I got to be a part of it. And in some level was, um, it felt like I had, I was half lucky and half sort of, um, it made me feel like a sense of duty. Like I have to do this, like no matter what I have to do that. Like it's, I can't imagine not being a part of that. Yeah. Before we get to the, uh, the the filmmaking portion of things, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about uh, the decision you made to get out of the army. Um, did, were you always just going to do your initial term and get out? Was was there any talk for you to continue on? Anything? Any of those thoughts? In between my two tours, I decided I hated garrison life, and I looked into like <laughs> maybe I could be like an ETT or the uh, I think you call them something else, but the the training teams with Afghans and such. Um, and then that sort of led me down this path of like, I was too young to do it or something, but, and so like, uh, but I got to do another tour with the, with the same unit and, um, I got to spend a lot of time with, um, some ODAs, um, uh, and, and some green berets or whatever. And I, I love the way they operated. I thought it was sort of like a, it, it, it like hit this, um, you get to be a soldier and sort of a egghead sort of thing going on, but also be like a snake eater, tough guy. Like it just, it it captured all of these things that um, I wanted to be in many ways. And so I thought about it. Um, I I really did. I was like, do I want to do that? Cause I I could have, I, I was, I was falling in love with the idea a lot. It just felt like I always had this love for movies and it's like, if I do this, I don't know if I'll ever go back to that other one. And so it felt like a fork in the road for me, whether that was true or not. And so I was like, I think I'm going to get out because I don't know if I wanted to be in for another five years or however long it was going to take. I forget what the requirement was six. I can't remember. Um, and I feel like also like once you get to 10, you're like, well, I should just stay in for 20. It's yep. like all these senses. Once you get to the top of the hill, just walk down. 
yeah. And so I was like, man, you should probably get the hell out. And so I did. And, um, it was the right choice. Ultimately. Um, I got lucky as a, as to be a PL twice and to, to have two tours that quickly and in, in like in four years or whatever. And like, and to come out the way I did. And, um, I got to do some stuff that was really remote and, um, like this young man's romantic idea of what it means to, you know, I want to be a soldier and such. And so I don't, I was like, I think I, I don't think I'll, if I keep scratching that itch, I don't know if I'll get much more out of it. Um, yeah. So I walked. Yeah. When you think back to that, I mean, look, obviously things have worked out, you know, phenomenally for you. Um, but not playing out how it would have worked out, I guess, you know, I mean, full confidence you made the right decision. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are times I wish that I had sort of seen that thing, you know, um, you know, I, I had a, a peer go that route and, and he went deeper and deeper as far as you can go into the special operations community. And it's been such a treat to watch him do that. And, uh, then, you know, <laughs> make sure, could I have done that? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> right. So I get that every once in a while, but like the fact of the matter is, is that, um, I was probably always much more of a, of a little poet than I was a warrior. And, uh, I think, I think I went to where I was supposed to be. Um, and I'm glad I dipped my toe in that pond, but, um, I had to like pretend to be someone that I wasn't completely to be that guy. And I, once I was able to be myself fully again, I realized how much I was missing of, uh, the rest of me in my own life. When you told your guys you were getting out and they asked you what you wanted to do, did you tell them I'm going to go make movies? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, did I they look at you crazy? <laughs> I mean, first off, everyone thought I was gay. <laughs> I, and I was like, I fucking get it, guys. I get it. Like, it's a quote sign movies, film. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, there seemed to be something wrong with it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, it was not for me, actually. I always tried to turn it on my head, on the head of it and be like, um, God, we can't even really use these words anymore, but it was so prevalent at the time that uh, everyone would just throw around fag. And so um, I would just double down and, and, and say that I was a fag and just sort of get into this sort of like pissing contest about it and this like chest bumping thing um, that I, I love doing that to homophobes so much uh, because they don't know how to handle it. <laughs> it's yeah. the funniest thing for me to watch. Uh, but Because um, you can visually see the discomfort. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just, it's just fun to play the like game of who's the biggest alpha, and you realize like half these alphas are just so afraid of like men being in love with other men uh, that it's it's just it's just great comedy to me, um, and uh, you know I mean I uh, it's it's funny like uh, my, my best friend from high school is a gay man, and uh, he finally like made his way to San Francisco, and um, I finally went up there to see him over a few years ago, and like. Uh, it was, it was great. You know, it's so funny is that uh, being with him and all his uh, and his guys, because it's just like tight knit group of guys. It reminded me so much of being in a platoon. It was weird. And I was like, I've never seen people be so like you guys are like you guys like do everything together. You guys have each other's backs in a way that like I hadn't seen. It was like a total tribe. And I was like, so like, man, this is so interesting. I haven't seen this since I was in the army. And it was just it was just 
And I just like wanted to like call up all these guys that we used to like have all these jokes about, you know, all those homophobic jokes around like, guys, guess what? I found it where we can get that experience. We just have to be gay. <laughs> and we moved to San Francisco. They have so much fun uh, and they do. Uh, but anyways, yeah, that was, that was sort of, uh, I don't know what we're talking about now, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're moving on from, from your career in the military. Um, all right. So are you going to film school? Is that the intent at this point? Yeah, I went to um, the American Film Institute. Okay. And um, I just knew that I needed some structure once I got out because it's a, it's a strange thing, you know, to go. I think that transition is hard for everybody. I had heard that it was hard. I could see that it was going to be difficult. And I said, man, I can't just like go out there flapping. I need like something to, to like structure my day. And so I thought that was a good idea. And uh, it was a really great school. And I was finally ready to be a student. Um, I learned a lot from it. And um, I, I loved every minute of it, I have to say. Um, I was not a great student undergrad. I was too, too smart for it. You know, like I thought I could just like skim by a lot and not pay attention here and there. And, um, you know, I was different when I was 27 now. I was like, oh, I'd love to learn. And there's some great people here I can learn from. And they brought in an, a, just a catalog of professionals you got to listen to speak to and, and like uh, learn from them. And, and I just I just soaked it up. I loved it. I'd, I'd go back to that school again in a heartbeat. Not that I need to, I suppose, but like just to relive that. Um, I, I think school is just such a great place. Once you're finally ready to do it, um, it's like an, it's like a playground. I don't know if I'm going out of order here chronologically, but uh, you mentioned about learning in I would be remiss if I didn't mention that um, you, one of your mentors in the movie industry, ended up being George Lucas, and he directed what was that? Uh, what was the name of that movie? Oh, Star Wars. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know if that came after you made Day One or before, but I mean, obviously, before, actually, it was before. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and shout out to the uh, American Corporate Partners because that's all through them. Um, you know, they were teaming up veterans with uh, mentors in the field that the veteran was pursuing. And uh, I think it was just a matter of right time, right place, uh, because someone got Tom Hanks. I heard someone got Oprah. Um, like there was like a, a celebrity push at one moment. And um, I think someone had spoken to uh, George Lucas's people and um, they asked to see some of my work to make sure that I guess I wasn't a dipshit. And and so I sent them some and it was good enough, I guess. And it was just this weird, like, I felt like Cinderella going to the ball, man. It was, I didn't know who I was meeting. It was all surprise. It was on TV with um, uh, Bob Woodward, Woodruff, excuse me. Yeah, Woodruff. Ugh. I was going to say, those oh. are two different people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, apologies. Um, and uh, it, it was just cool. I was like, I got to meet this guy and he, we talked over maybe a, a year or two. I'd go up there to, to his ranch. Uh, I mean, Skywalker Ranch is like this strange paradise where everyone gets to like live in this beautiful property where there's like vineyards and cows and lakes and just make movies. Okay, um, I was thinking of something totally different when you said Skywalker Ranch. I'm thinking like stormtroopers on every 15 feet and, you know, well, I mean, Jabba the Hutt like, sitting outside uh, at the front door. <laughs> No, it's like Boba it's, Fett is the butler. <laughs> I mean, that stuff's all over the place. I mean, oh, is it really? I mean, you, you spit and get some memorabilia or whatever, but um, it, and it is 
I guess I should, it shouldn't be surprising. Everyone there is a Star Wars fan. Uh, I don't know why I didn't think that that wouldn't be the case. That like, oh, they just work there. But no, everyone's like, <laughs> they're all in the church of Star Wars there. Uh, but no, he was, he was such a walks con- pets. <laughs> yeah. He was so kind to me though. Uh, and uh, gave me his time. And we just talked about story and like where to, where to, where to sort of like focus my attention on things. He even watched some of my work, which was not great, you know? Uh, and then by the end um, I did make this, this short day one, which was based off of, I had a female interpreter on my second tour, uh, sort of a Afghan American woman. And, um, or I should say Pashtun. And, um, and so I, I made this film about her and uh, uh, George Lucas and, and basically the bunch of people that he'd introduced me to up there uh, were super kind and gave me um, a bunch of services in kind. That was like uh, visual effects. And we got to do sound up there with, I mean, I'm talking about like the best of the best. And it was just such a, incredible experience that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been a vet and they hadn't been this program and George Lucas hadn't, he, he just so happened that he gave a damn. Um, and so I just felt really lucky. Um, and I soaked it all up and learned a bunch. And, um, you know, I felt really good when that, when the film started to, to take off and um, it was cool. I, the, the guys that I did sound with, uh, they're like, some of the best, you know, they do star Wars, they do JJ Abrams movies, Paul Thomas Anderson movies. They, they do, they've been nominated and won Oscars many times over. And uh, we were at the Oscars together. It was so cool uh, because like I was there because of some of with their help. And it was just such a funny thing to be like, wow. Like I was just some guy who were helping out. And, and now it's like, we're both hanging out here. And for them, it like, you know, they'd gone a bunch of times. But it was kind of cool just to see and to experience that with them. Day one gets nominated for an Academy Award. I, I don't know what the equivalent to that is in anywhere else in life. I mean, I suppose it's like being told you're nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, but I haven't been nominated for that either. So uh, I'm a little bit at a loss here. But I guess kind of what's that feeling? Like, do you get a call? Is there a letter in the mail? How do you? How does one find out they've been nominated for an Academy Award? Um, well, you you, you apply. And there's a process, so you know you're up for it. Um, oh, you got to apply I, to be a nominee for an Academy Award? So you have to, like, uh, you have to win another festival. And then once you win okay. that festival, you qualify to be considered for the Academy Award. Huh. And, um, it's like getting and into so the New York Marathon, but different. Yeah, exactly, actually. Yeah, yeah exactly. You have to build up, like, a credibility. I got to win a couple other marathons first before they're going to let me run this one. You can't just run in New York. That's true. <laughs> um, and so... I mean, but you're like one of a thousand, five hundred. Some, it's somewhere between those numbers, I, I want to say. And so it just seems like that's not going to happen. Um, and then it got whittled down to ten, and we were on the list. And I was like, "Holy shit!" Um, I just didn't see that coming. Um, and then I woke up at five a.m. one morning because that's when they do the press announcements, so that it's time with the East Coast for, I guess, I don't know, publications. And I watched it happen on TV and they, they said day one and I just couldn't believe it. Um, it felt like I put a lot of my own feelings into that movie about how powerful the war had been for me. Um, how 
I mean, frankly, it's less about soldiering and more about confronting um, everyday people, um, everyday Afghans. And sort of those, those experiences I had of going into people's homes in the middle of the night to take their dads away, that sort of burned something in me that I wanted to talk about. And the intimacy of going into someone's home. Um, I mean, you're, you're a father now. I mean, can you imagine someone coming into your house in the middle of the night and throwing your kids around? And I mean, I, I shouldn't, we didn't throw people around. I, I shouldn't say it like that, but it, it, I'm sure it felt like that. Um, you know, and it's particularly for them, it's, it's, uh, to have a foreign man in your house, like to have like 30 or 40 of them with guns pointed at your people. I mean, um, it would make me want to murder people if they ever did that to me and my family. Um, and I thought about some of the grace that I saw in those situations. And so I wanted to capture that. And so it felt um, honest uh, that or it felt good that my, uh, what I felt was honest was, was being seen by other people and that it was, that they were responding to that. Um, to that experience and those sort of feelings that I was, um, um, I guess, grappling with. Yeah, grappling with. And I don't know, it's, I think in some ways, you know, art is just, it's just an expression, it's an act of creation. And you're trying to say, I feel this thing, do you feel that thing? Um, walk in these shoes, do you, do you, do they feel like your shoes? Um, and I felt like a lot of times I would look into these families and see my own family. And I was happy that I was able to capture some of that and share it with other people. Yeah. I was going to ask you and hearing that last answer sort of answered the question for me. Uh, but I wanted to ask about, you know, there, there's, I, I guess it's similar to music. Like you, you can get people who are talented and make music and make songs, but they're not making their music. Um, yeah. you, you seem to just indicate now it's not about making a movie. It's about making your movie and, and your movie should say something. I'm correct. And like, you're not, you're not going to do a film for the sake of putting out a film because it'll be a successful movie. Are you more just about doing a film that says something emotionally to the audience that you want them to know? I mean, it's, or is it a combination of both, I guess, in the industry? I mean, look, I, I turned down an action movie. It was um, probably stupidly, um, professionally, I mean. But ultimately, I thought, I don't have children yet. And at some point, I, I, I really want to. And I think when that time comes, I can be less precious about the things that is that I want to spend my time doing. And uh, I will definitely do an action movie so that I can uh, provide for, for my people. Um, but I've been trying to write things that mean something to me, um, that get at that experience, that get at the family I come from and that legacy. And um, I, I like to work within that sort of space because it feels like I am... making good on something or at least trying to in a way. But I mean, at the same token, I also want to entertain people because it's powerful to entertain people for them to escape into a story and forget about uh, the bullshit of their lives. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure you, there was a, there was a, I watched Pride and Prejudice, which is a, 
a corset drama mm-hmm. about some English people, women particularly. I watched that movie probably 20 or 30 times when I was deployed on my second tour because it was the complete opposite of what I was going through. Um, I was able to escape into this other world and I loved it. Um, and so I think that there is a powerful thing in escape um, that, that, that movies can offer. And so I, I do want to do that as well. I don't only want to make movies about the complexities and tragedies and also the transcending qualities of combat or war. Uh, there's more to my life than that as well. Uh, but it is something that, uh, at least for a while, a chapter or so I'd like to explore. Um, I think it's, um, I think it's so tied to who I am and where I come from that it would be a wasted opportunity to, to not try and see what's just beneath that surface. Do you want to share what the movie was you passed up? Oh, no, that would be, uh, that'd be bad. <laughs> it's fair enough. Uh, I had, forgive me. I had to ask, you know, no, 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 I, I understand. I'm not, I'm not upset. By it. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and I, I, I think all those things are true. Um, and, I don't know. I, I I think there's an idealistic part of of any. There's an idealistic part of of being a soldier, right? Like sure. y- you want to lead, and and there's a romanticism of combat, and there's a romanticism of of being a soldier. And then you know sometimes the the actual reality of it is different on ground. But uh, I think that there's a there's a balance between all those things. Um, and and in your line of work, um, there are movies that say something, and then there are movies that are just movies and they're good movies because they yeah. do exactly what you said. They just entertain people. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I love a good riveting script that, that, you know, um, makes me think and, and makes me kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, make my mind do more work. And then there's always the ones that just take you out of reality for a couple of hours, make you laugh your ass off. And, you know, you cherish those all the same. So. Absolutely. I, I think there's, yeah, I think I would hope that, I would say the movie that really made me think about movies uh, early on was last of the Mohicans. And I saw the last, it was the last um, like 15 minutes of that movie, which is like, there's all this is an incredible music and it's like fathers and sons and chasing after uh, captives. And like, it, it's like this huge culmination of running up a mountain and trying to save this woman. Um, and then, you know, the loss of the, the last Mohican, the son um, in this incredible fight um, that is essentially wordless for the majority of it. Um, and I think that kind of film is able to both entertain and to, to reach deep inside us with like some of the myth and some of the human touch and experience. And so, I mean, ideally, you know, you want to make things like that. Um, it's just sort of like, you know, uh, difficult <laughs> you know, if it were easy, we'd see more of those. So I'm sure I'll make a combination of both. I'll be lucky if I get to make both. Obviously, you worked on The Outpost. You said it before. I'm curious in general about your thoughts on military movies. Um, We've been saturated with them for the last decade plus. I I had an agent tell me that, you know, military movies of our generation are our parents' westerns, right? They made hundreds of westerns back in the 50s and 60s, and it was what they did. Um, military movies have sort of become our version of Westerns. Everywhere you turn, there's something related to combat. Uh, I, for one, I, I, I judge a military movie based off of 
not necessarily its accuracy to the story, but its accuracy to combat. Um, yeah. Because I, I, the only reason to put those scenes in there is to replicate the feeling visually and try to solicit that visceral reaction, that emotion of combat for people who have never been there. Um, and, and so that's just my barometer for judging it, right? Like, I, and I said this to Rod Laurie, who was the director of, of The Outpost. We had him on, on the hazard ground. I know when they do a good job at simulating combat, when like my knee starts, you know, I had that nervous twitch and my, my leg just generally starts shaking, you know, and I could feel my heart beating a little faster because it sort of brings me back that adrenaline rush and that heightened sense of, okay, it's on kind of deal. Um, and and I got that from the outpost, you know, the last hour of it, when they did the actual fighting, I I felt like I got that. Um, there are a lot of other movies, Black Hawk down to death for me, to me, that's still, I think the, the, the gold standard when it comes to creating a combat movie um, that I, I think hits it. There are a whole bunch of other ones I think that miss the mark, but I'm just curious on your thoughts on military movies. Too many of them. Can we do more? Is there room for more or does it have There's to tell a different story? Um, I don't feel like we've, I can't speak to the outpost. I'm too close to it in terms sure. of being able to assess it and judge it. I think it did a lot of things really well, but it's hard for me to really say what it is. Um, I also have like, different ideas of what it could be or what it could have been. Uh, I was there, you know, I was a part of the, the making of it. And so, it, so it, it's hard for me to see it for what it is. I can see that it does capture an authenticity, um, which I'm very happy that it was able to do. Um, my thing is it could probably have done some things better or such, but that's just at this point, it's like, it's hard for me to turn things off that works. It's like, that's my job as to figure out how to make things better. Anyways. Um, I think, though, that I, I've seen – I haven't seen our platoon yet. I haven't seen um, our apocalypse now. I haven't seen a Saving Private Ryan yet from our generation. Um, I haven't seen the best years of our lives. Have you ever seen that film? No. This is a whole black and white film about these guys coming home from war. It's, I watched it recently. It's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's the, it's the closest thing I've seen to this, the coming home story that just touched me. And it was like, I mean, the movie's made like 1946 or seven or something. It's old, man. I mean, one of the characters is a guy who has no hands, a guy who lost him uh, in the war. Um, you know, he plays, he's an actor. Oh, he wasn't an actor. He acted in that movie. Um, and so I think that there's a, I think part of it is, um, and I suppose this might be self-serving. I don't think the people who are telling the stories quite have a grasp on it yet. It's sort of like um, right now we've only seen a bunch of men direct little women or like tell that story. And it's like um, we haven't seen it from inside that, that, uh, that experience. Um, and because it always, it feels a little bit like, the things that people are interested that haven't gone through it are a little like, um, pornographic. And that's a weird term to use. And I'm sorry, I'll try and explain it. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is they're sort of like, ooh, and awed by the superficial elements. Right. Um, and not interested in sort of like what's beneath the skin and the, uh, sort of other ways that, intimacy can be represented to complete that analogy. Um, and I'm hoping that at some point we can, we can do that. Um, 
it also feels like a lot of people are interested in trying to tell the modern war story in a way that wraps up the politics of it in a way that like, I mean, politically it's, it's too much of a mess to try and solve in a, a two hour movie. Yeah. Like I've been reading about it for years. I've been a part of it. And everyone's I'm like, what the hell's going on? What, how do we get here? And, and, and I'm, and I know it so well. And, and you think that a viewer, a viewer doesn't even understand the difference between Afghanistan and Iraq. No. no and, they, and they are wildly they, different wars. They're completely yeah, different it, wars. And so I think that there's something in that that is, it's hard. We haven't had that sort of film experience yet. Um, I mean, there's been some great work. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to disparage anybody. I think they've told great stories. Um, but I think that there's a little bit, um, it's either, it, it, it either turn up the guilt and the tragedy too much or they turn up the glorification too much. And I think that they're missing out on something that is just an individual experience that well, I haven't quite seen yet. Okay, so, and and forgive the unprofessional opinion here as you are the movie pro and yeah. I'm not, but I'll, I'll say a couple of things here. Um, one, the military movies of today and do a... While they can do a service to combat, what they can't do a service to, especially in a two-hour film, is the bonds of soldiers, right? Like, yeah. you can't you can't shortcut that in a real way. Saving Private Ryan does a better job at that than it, it does really at actual is. combat, right? Yeah. I mean, the opening yeah. scene everybody loves, but people who have been in gunfire know it's complete horseshit. Uh, you know, the, the, what lost me immediately was the guy in the water. The bullet goes in the water, goes through the guy, and comes out the other side, which ballistics and bullets, that doesn't happen. Water will stop a bullet. So, you know, you lost me with that as far as, you know, a guy walking around looking for his arm. I mean, you know, we're just, whatever. Anyway, and that, that's just a critique. But I think Save a Prime Ryan does an amazing job at building the relationships between the people Absolutely. in that squad. And that's real and authentic. And that. You know, the fight between Robin and, and Horvat, that, that stuff happens. That's real. And it only yeah. happens because these guys actually love each other. You know, and I think that that is, that is hard to recreate in battle scenes. And it's so hard to, to shorten that um, without trying to give you one or two impactful moments that just lead yeah. your mind to assume that that's the case. Like, well, these guys you like know, each think, other. These guys hate each other kind of deal. The best thing we've seen thus far, actually, out of, of the, to represent the, the recent wars, um, has been Restrepo. I think that um, um, Sebastian Younger and Tim Hetherington really captured, uh, I think he even called it, Tim Hetherington called it man Eden. And it's like, it's, and then, and then Sebastian Younger, like, sometimes hop it, it's the only place he knew where young men could openly love each other. And um, I think that that I have not really seen. The Outpost gets it at, 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 at that in moments. It's just, it's sort of it's it, it's a condensed form and it has this big battle and so it's difficult to sort of do all of that. Yeah, it's like you have to time. pick one or the other. It's hard to do both in the same movie. Yeah, yeah, it's it really, really is. It's really uh, hard you're to right. Do that Stephen Private Ryan was kind of able to do it uh, successfully. Um, I hadn't thought about it in that way in, in a while, and, and you're totally right. Um, it does it, it perfectly gets at that camaraderie and that sort of family quality that they have. So I would like to see some of that. Um, I think it's also interesting to see what happens. Um, when people come back, I, I haven't seen a lot of great veteran stories yet. And I think it's because uh, the people outside of the community, I think they think that that story is 
drugs and suicide and it doesn't have a happy ending. It's hard to sell it. Yeah. And it's like, there's other ways to tell that story that aren't about the, the terribleness of it. Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, I'm hoping some stuff that I'm working on now, like can get at that better. Cause I, mean, I think that that is a lot of fun is, uh, is being a veteran is, is in its own way, another sort of like, um, like, if, you know, you go to Mars when you go to war, it's like you come back to Earth and come back to Earth is also a very interesting story. Um, so it's, I would love to see some more of that, I would think. Um, yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of sci-fi stuff that's doing some decent work. You know, I'd love to see, you ever read this book called The Forever War? No. So look, I'm not a sci-fi guy, really. It's, I just, I, I know like two or three of them. But this was, a, it's written by a Vietnam vet. His name escapes me. But you can tell when you read the book, like this guy understood uh, what it meant to go to war. And essentially it's a forever war because it's a, they have to time travel. And we're like, basically everything back home continues on. And they, every time they fight, they lose like a hundred years back home. So, so by the time they finally come home, nothing is the same. And it, it really captured this feeling of like that, that I thought was really powerful. Um, I heard someone was trying to make it. I don't know. I should probably look into that. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's one of the only things that, okay. Maybe that's the other thing that we have to start doing it is try and find other um, genres and techniques to get at these ideas because nobody wants to watch the movie of the guy coming home and drinking too much. And now there's domestic violence and alcohol is, you know, it's just, that's, that's not, that's not the sort of transcendent thing that we go to see movies for. No, that's the thing we go to therapy for. So, um, yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a whole different, different, uh, yeah. you know, set, set of problems you got to deal with. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, not that you have to divulge too much, but uh, I mean, is there a specific project you're working on? Do you, is there something you want to get done? Is there something you want to create going forward? Yeah. Um, I've got two things that um, are pretty close to being, I think, <sighs> give them a real shot and see what happens. Uh, one is a, a feature version of um, the short that I made, and it basically just follows one mission, but it does it from a, a few different points of view. Um, one from a soldier, one from a kid who works on Afghan, kid who works on base, and one from the interpreter. And it sort of like uses this idea of how language is, is difficult and how that interpreter is key into understanding all of this stuff. Um, and I, I think that is, it's, it's a war film I've not sort of seen before. Um, and I, I think that could be um, a very engaging uh, ride. And it's sort of it's like it's just one mission. So it's, it's a pretty um, fast thing. So I'm hoping I can make that at some point. Um, and the second one is a sort of veteran coming home story. Um, but it's much more. I, I won't tell you what it's about just because I don't want to like jinx things and so forth. Um, but it's much more like. No country for old men or something like that. It sort of gets into these sort of crime thriller areas that I think is, is an interesting space. Um, of like bringing the war home a little bit. So what's mentally tougher to stay in ranger school or the movie industry? Ooh. Um, There's a lot of quitting both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're both wars of attrition too, by the way. <laughs> it's so funny. That's, that is the analogy I give people when they're like, well, like, how long are you going to do this movie thing? Like, how do you know if you're not going to make it and so forth? And I was like, in my mind, I am treading water. 
And so are all my peers. I just have to be the last one treading water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I just try not to focus on, they're both mind games for sure. Um, Look, radio school is harder because it's more intense, uh, but uh, doing this as a lifetime is more, uh, the consequences are higher because, you know, now it's starting to affect uh, people that I love in a way that like, if I fail ranger school, it just means that I feel like a loser for a little while. Um, you know, it's like, I'll be all right. But if I fail at this, it's like, well, uh, I promise these people I love that we're going to do certain things in certain ways. <laughs> I'm going to have a family. And it's like, it's like, it has consequences of, of real value in a way that like ranger school doesn't. But I think, um, look, ranger school is probably the hardest thing I ever did. Um, yeah. In, in, in a condensed amount of time, I think it was harder than combat. It wasn't as catastrophic or as <clears throat> as scary or um, as meaningful by any stretch, but it was probably harder for me. Yeah. Uh, you played Sergeant Brad Larson in The Outpost. No designs on wanting to stay down the acting world. You, you, you're you're a much better writer director than you are an actor. Um. <clears throat> well, I, I only came to that role because um, the people who make movies are cheap, and uh, they knew they could get me for a low dollar amount. Um, that's not entirely true. I think it's that I understood that Rod Lurie, who is the director, um, I was working with him on the script extensively and, um, we needed someone to play Brad Larson because he played such a massive role, um, in the battle, um, and in the movie. Um, and I think that Rod liked the idea of me coming in and having an authenticity of having been a soldier. Um, although I'm sure I don't hand it, hold a candle to Brad Larson. Um, but you know, I I did that because I didn't want to say no to things um, in the way that like once I was like, hey, if you're going to be in the army, you might as well like go be in the 173rd, go go to ranger school, go to go be able to like go be an actual platoon leader. Don't like uh, if, if you I mean, obviously it's not all your choice, but like like take it head on and don't say no to anything. Um, and I felt like, you know, I definitely learned in ranger school like, hey, like you learn what it's like to carry the 240 or, you know, a machine gun or whatever. It's heavyweight. Um, and um, I wanted to know what it was like to be an actor. And so this was the only chance I was ever going to get where I knew I wouldn't fail completely. Cause I, I knew that I had, I had done one other acting job in my entire life is that I, I pretended to know what I was doing when I was a Lieutenant. And so I could do this role too. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I, I was just having, uh, our producer, Matt, um, you know, he and I were lieutenants together and, and uh, we were just joking the other day that we lived by a motto. Uh, I may yeah. not know what I'm doing, but at least I look good. And that was sort of how you got by as a second lieutenant. You know, if you just kind of yeah. look the part a little bit, uh, you, you could pass as somebody who looked pretty cool and high speed. Uh, so yeah. you, all you had to do is not open your mouth and screw it up. You know, it's a yeah, that old Abe up. Lincoln proverb, you know, better be thought of a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt kind of deal. Yeah, that was a... Yeah. Unfortunately for me, I never shut up as a lieutenant. So uh, quickly, people found out what a moron I was. So uh, lesson learned again. Hard not to be a lieutenant and not look like a moron yeah, at least that's true. half the time. Um, if we're going to make the uh, the Hank Hughes movie, who's playing you? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot here, obviously. Question. There, I'm there, trying to take it seriously. There's no shame uh, in picking Ben Affleck. Me. It's fine. <laughs> He's a Boston guy. Uh, I'll tell you what, I, I'll pick Caleb Landry Jones. He's one of the few actors. He was in the outpost. Yep. 
Um, he looks nothing like me and behaves nothing like me. And we, I love spending time with him because he thinks so differently than I do. Um, but I thought he was such a tremendous talent. I would watch that guy do anything. I'd watch that guy put up wallpaper. Like he's, he's, um, he could do anything. I think. I get too many Jerry Piven, Jeremy Piven, uh, references or Joe Rogan. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Joe Rogan or, uh, I, I personally would pick Scott Kahn. He's just cool. He looks like a guy I'd go drink a couple of beers with. So I'm sure he has a good time. And he's short and stocky like me, so I, yeah. I, I think it all kind of works out. Uh, if if you weren't doing movies, what would you be doing? Um, I thought about this, actually. Uh, I think I'd try and be a therapist. I had such a great experience in therapy. Um, it really helped me understand things, and I like to explore psychology and how people think and um, what a beautiful gift it is to help people understand themselves, uh, forgive themselves, uh, help them find a way forward that is better for their life experience and for those around them. I think it is like um, there was a time where I was a, a very much um, a Catholic um, and I, I was an ardent believer in, in the word uh, I think the only thing I believe in that much anymore uh, um, is therapy. I think it has the incredible power to heal, uh, not to disparage Catholicism. They have a lot of great ideas. Um, but it's the thing that I, if I had to believe in something, I think that it is in, in, in talking uh, with other people, uh, with, with trained professionals, um, to navigate uh, the inner workings of our minds. It's, it's a very beautiful thing. If you had to go back and write a letter uh, to yourself. Um, and you were writing the letter to the guy who was just entering the army and yeah. the guy who was just starting to be a writer and director. What do you think would be the same themes in both of those letters? Um, what comes to mind is the best advice I've ever received. Um, it was from a teacher at the American film Institute and he was just a, a very astute man. And um, his advice was shut the fuck up. He goes, you think you have to talk a lot and you don't. Because the more you talk, often the worse, uh, the less clear you are and uh, the, the sort of less effective you are. And he said, so realize how much power you have in silence and how much power you have in not over explaining something or not trying to articulate yourself um, because you will inevitably put your foot in your mouth a lot. And I think that there is a, there is an incredible power in using your words selectively, particularly as a leader um, that I, I found it very useful. Um, I didn't know this trick when I was in the army, uh, but I, I learned a bit more, uh, you know, directing and it's less is more is also what he's saying. Um, and, that, and I think that it's, it's just, it's just so true. You just distill, distill, distill. And, and in that you will learn how to do that better and better and better. And you will then become the person that is capable of doing the things that you want to do. Boy, you know, uh, this has been one of the, the, the more uh, humbling episodes I've ever done. Every time I talk to you, I, I find out something I re or remember something I was really bad at as a lieutenant. Then I'm reminded how bad I am still at it to these days. <laughs> I, I mean, I get paid to talk for a living. I never shut the hell up. I mean, dear Lord, I, I suck at that. I wish I was a man of few words. Then again, I wouldn't have a job, but 
That's your your job, job is talking, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it pays the bills, right? I didn't want to work for a living, so I decided to become a radio host. Bad, bad idea. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I, I yeah, I, I just... Uh, I, I marvel at how little I know uh, still at this at this age. <laughs> I wish I could shut shut up more. So, uh, kind of you know wrapping things up here with you. I, I guess yeah. you know I, I I don't know. It's fair to compare the movie industry and and being in the military, but um, you know I, I think like anything that ebbs and flows and the ups and downs in it, it's sort of how you heal it um, or how you how you deal with it. Did the military prepare you mentally for the rigors of the of the film industry? Yes and no. Yes, it prepared me to uh, in, in in the leadership column. Absolutely. Um, I don't know anywhere else at that age you're going to get that kind of experience that has that um, resounding uh, effect um, as as being a platoon leader. It's um, with all the baggage that it ever came with, uh, I still think I would go back and be like, Hey man, you should do that. It's, it's really going to help you, um, to just understand how to communicate and lead people with and communicate, uh, sorry, communicate with and lead people. Um, what it did not prepare me for and what uh, I also grew up in the military is that, um, uh, the military is, uh, a little communist America. Like it's, Everything is like this social program and you just like the currency uh, that I grew up around is like, do your job and be the best at it. And, and that's it. Being a filmmaker um, is actually being an entrepreneur. I didn't know what the hell that was for a long time. I had I, never had to sort of be a lemonade stand kind of guy. And that was a big surprise to me um, that I was like, oh, I'm a salesman. Oh, of course, I'm a salesman. Shit. And I'd never had to sell anything really um, up until this job, you know, until then it was just, just doing the job and the job was sort of carved out for you. The space was defined, you know, um, in the film world. And I assume a lot of the world, the business world, um, it is up to self starters and for you to figure out what it is uh, that is going to drive the business to drive what it is that you do. This may be a little bit of a loaded question, but how do you know you've made it in the film industry? Or have you made it already? I mean, there are a lot of people who try and never make one damn movie, right? I mean, there are a lot of people yeah. hustling around to make one movie. You've made multiple, so and you're working on more. Um, and, and, you know, again, it's loaded because I'm asking you to sort of critique your own career and value. Sure, sure. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, like me in the radio industry, do I think I've ever made it? No, but I, I've been doing it for 15 years. There's, There's... You yeah, know, millions of people who would who don't get to say they did this for 15 years. Yeah, I mean, look, if you ask me that question, have you made it? I would say no. But I imagine that in 10 years, even if I imagine myself in the most successful way, if you'd ask if I made it, I'd probably feel that way. I think there's something about right. It's too like nebulous in some ways to ever have like a sure footing of it. But um, whenever I sort of psych myself out. I go, okay, quickly uh, compile a list of the things that you've done that you've been able to have success at so you can see that there is a, a narrative of you uh, increasing and, and, and having success and having stability. Because if you look at it, you know, just through the, the fine microscope of it all, it's difficult to see that pattern of, of success or made it. And so in that regard, I have made it, um, but 
mean, at this point, I'm still sort of scratching at the thing that a lot of sort of entrepreneurs and gig workers are, which is like, when's this, when does the security come? And that is, um, I don't know if that ever comes in this kind of line of business. I think what is going to have to actually happen is that you just have to stop worrying and, and uh, realizing that the security comes in a belief in yourself and that you will always be able to continue forward uh, because it's never going to present itself in the same way that like, well, hell yeah, I mean, I'm always going to get paid if I'm in the army. Like that doesn't really exist in a lot of line of work. No. Um, so that, that's where I have a hard time with like, what has made it mean? You know, like. What you said relates to the same industry I'm in, 100%. Yeah, I assume, it just, yeah. It, it, yeah. it was one of the more relatable things that somebody said to me about my industry, and you're not even in it. So, uh, you know, again, but look, uh, I mean, all all jokes aside and everything, I mean, it, it's it's impressive to watch what you've done from a distance. You know, I, again, not, not being the fair judge of whether you've made it or not. All I know is, is that, you know, Hell, I would love to make a movie one day, but I ain't smart enough and I don't have the chops to do it. But, you know, I mean, so the fact that you've made multiple uh, from where I sit is beyond impressive. And the fact that you're going to continue to do more uh, and be very successful at it uh, is always something, you know, that I salute. So congratulations on all that and certainly wishing you continued success and the best of luck in the film industry and whatever else your endeavors are. You know, I, I think it's it's so important that we have great veteran voices out there and people in prominent positions to affect lives and affect change going forward. And uh, you, much like me, that there is a, a passion and a, and a uh, inner sort of drive just to make sure that, that our fellow veterans are taken care of, right? Because nobody does it better than we do on our own. It's the buddy yeah. system. It's the one thing we've been brought up to believe. You take care of the person to the left and the right of you and don't let anything happen to them. And the rest of the stuff seems to be okay. Um, and, and I think regardless of what we do in our civilian lives and everything that goes on, that part never leaves us. And, and that comes Absolutely. through in everything that you're doing uh, and the work that you want to do and the work that you have done. So again, wishing you nothing but the best of luck and the best of success going forward. And certainly thank you for sharing your story. Uh, some of the emotional parts of it, obviously, you know, bring back some, some raw memories and, and uh, you know, it's always tough to sometimes go over some of that ground again, but uh, the honesty and, and, and the candor is, is certainly appreciated for the audience. So thank you for all that. It's my pleasure. I think that uh, ultimately I want other people to feel that they can talk about their experiences. And um, I feel like my only mission in that regard and my duty to my community uh, is to just be honest. And uh, we should promote that because there's nothing worse than people who can't talk about those things. It just, it's cancer. Thank you. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.